Hello and welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Well, it didn't take long, did it? Less than a month after the UK-EU treaty came into force, two sides fell out spectacularly over the distribution of the COVID-19 vaccines. We'll take a look at the latest row and what the fallout means. It was a reminder that managing the UK's relationship with the EU is not going to be easy in the post-Brexit landscape. We've got a new paper out this week which looks at the potential for future bust-ups and how to resolve them. And then we'll dive into one of the first opportunities for the UK to show off what Global Britain is all about when Glasgow hosts this year's International COP26 Climate Change Summit. I've assembled an all-star team of Brexit experts today. Maddie Gimont-Jack, who leads our Brexit team, is with us. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Bronwyn. Jess Sargent, senior researcher on our Brexit and devolution teams, and IFG Northern Ireland expert, is with us too. Hi, Jess. Hi. Great to have you with us. And no Brexit lineup would be complete without our senior fellow, Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hiya. And I'm delighted that we're joined as well by Tony Connolly, Europe editor for RTE, Ireland's public service broadcaster, and he's co-presenter of the Brexit Republic podcast. Hi, Bronwyn. Great to have you with us, Tony. How does, by the way, how does Brussels feel with the UK gone? <laughs> empty, of course. <laughs> it's Well, it feels pretty empty anyway because of the... Um the the pandemic and the lockdown but um it, yeah it is it's still we're still getting used to it uh, to be sure but the cheerful british press corps is still here in numbers so uh once the lockdown is lifted then i hope to meet them for a, a pint at some point i'm glad to hear it and, and how have you all felt brexit is suddenly back in the news in a big way have you all been missing it I mean, I think I think what I would say is that, you know, Brexit being in the news isn't isn't really a good thing. Um, it seems that Brexit tends to only be in the news when things aren't going very well. And, you know, we have had a sort of steady stream of reports of, of uh, the challenges businesses are facing adjusting to Brexit. But obviously the sort of recent um, sort of concerns around the Northern Ireland Protocol are sort of taking that to another level. Oh, no, oh, no, absolutely fair point. Well, look, let's let's dive into some of those questions with our first uh, topic, which is really about this mysterious thing called Article 16. And that, this is the the, the between the EU and the UK involved the, the EU threatening to deploy the nuclear option of triggering Article 16. Before we go any further, Jess, tell us what Article 16 is. So Article 16 is a safeguarding provision um, in the protocol, um, and it's only meant to be used in the event of serious economic, societal or environmental difficulties that are liable to persist um, or diversion of trade. And even if it's used, um, if uh, either side can take unilateral measures, um, but those should be limited both in their scope and duration. So they really are to address very specific problems that might be unforeseen or arise because of exceptional circumstances. It's almost like a pressure valve um, in the event of um, something particularly difficult happening and not a kind of provision in which each side can discard particular obligations that might be convenient, um, inconvenient or problematic in a particular circumstance. So I think the EU's use of this rightly um, drew a lot of criticism. And what it's also done is it has um, essentially kind of lowered the bar for the threshold for those sorts of calls. We had seen previously uh, members of, of the DU UP calling for Article 16 to be triggered to remove some of those checks that are required on GBNI trade. Initially, that was kind of in the fringes. Um, but what we've seen actually now is the EU's proposed use of it has amplified some of those calls. And that's now been a position that's been adopted by the, the party as a whole and the First Minister herself. Because the, the EU, and it reached for the trigger, it didn't pull it. Is that right? 
Yes, well, absolutely. It's um, a bit confusing in that the it did pub- publish draft legislation. And so perhaps if there hadn't been a further intervention, that might have been what would have happened. But quite quickly, following very strong concerns raised by all the political parties in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland and in the UK government too, uh, the EU decided to reverse that move. So I think that's very welcome. Um, What they said is that it was an oversight that the person who had um, kind of published this piece of legislation hadn't fully understand the implications of that. The concern here was around um, vaccines and the EU um, wanting to impose export controls um, on vaccines. They were concerned that um, the protocol would allow those vaccines to move freely into Northern Ireland. And because of the fact that there weren't checks um, on goods moving between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, it could be used as a kind of a backdoor. But really, um, it's not clear that that was a genuine or um, genuine risk, to be honest, because of the way that vaccines are distributed, actually. No, that's that's also a good point, which 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 we might come on to, but a very good point. Tony, just tell us about the UK's response and how that went down in Brussels. Um, yeah, I mean, I would just to, for clarity, just pick up on what uh, Jess had said there. The regulation that they brought out last Friday was essentially to make sure that vaccine doses that should be going to member states under advanced purchase uh, agreements with pharmaceutical companies weren't either deliberately or inadvertently being sent elsewhere. And uh, so, so therefore, they, they put in this, it's a, in fact, a trade instrument which would require uh, member states to check the details of these shipments before they left the factory. And if there was any concern, then the commission would step in. Uh, and if, if there was no concern, then the factory would get uh, a, an export authorization. Now, that was only for just batches of vaccines that were going outside the EU. So therefore, uh, any batches going within the EU from one member state to another wouldn't need these export authorizations. Then someone thought, well, because Northern Ireland is regarded as part of the single market, then typically it should also have a waiver for these export authorizations. But then if you follow the, the import of the protocol, you have this unfettered trade between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, so that was seen as a as a problem, as an anomaly, as a as a loophole. So that was why they reached for Article 16. Uh, of course, it's a sledgehammer to crack a nut, and we all can see the the fallout from that. Um, but this was only going to bite at the factory. It, it, it and EU officials and Dublin uh, officials have also said it was never envisaged that there would be some kind of check on the Irish border looking for vaccines that shouldn't be going into Northern Ireland. Uh, we've made that very clear, so thanks very much in, in, indeed for that. Jill, um, what's the UK's response been? So the UK obviously on Friday actually I thought responded quite sensibly uh, and quite maturely, worked both I think with the Commission representation in London Irish government came in as well, and representations were made, and as we saw, the EU very rapidly backed down. So I think, you know, that was actually quite a good sign of handling this relationship more maturely. I'm not sure whether Tony would agree, but I thought that was quite a good sign, quite good cooperation. I would, I would and, agree, actually. Yeah, and quite de-dramatised in that sense. But since then, what, as Jess said, this has really sort of, you know, thrown a bit of red meat 
And all of those who'd been saying the government should be triggering Article 16, we saw almost on the day that the protocol uh, started went into operation on 1st of January, Ian Paisley Jr. already calling for the for Article 16 to be triggered. That's sort of been coming up time and time again. And what we've then seen, I think, has been less edifying from the UK government. We've seen this public letter, uh, a private letter that suddenly got out and had to be published by Michael Gove to his opposite number on the Joint Committee, setting out lots of conditions that were needed to make the wider issue of the protocol operate better, uh, raising concerns. But we also saw the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister's questions yesterday, again, sort of, you know, saying he potentially would use Article 16. And I think that raising of the temperature is not very helpful, given there are very, very real issues to be solved on how does the protocol operate, not necessarily now, but as Jess, I think, said in the past, there are all these grace periods that are about to expire, the sticking plasters that were agreed uh, late in December, uh, where there are conversations that need to happen about the long-term sustainability of the protocol and that debate, which is, I think, where it needs to move, but perhaps it needs to move in the cooler temperature that seemed to be prevailing late on Friday night. So, Maddie, just just remind us what the Northern Ireland Protocol is and give us what you, what you think this means for, for what's going to happen to it. Yeah, so I think what we've got to remember that the Northern Ireland Protocol is something that the UK government sort of signed up to in October 2019. And the idea, essentially what it does is it regulates the trading goods between Northern Ireland and the rest of the EU and Northern Ireland and Great Britain. And the way that it's been implemented so far is that any goods that where EU rules apply moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland will need to comply with EU checks as if it was sort of an EU external border. Um, But what the government has done is is committed to say that any goods moving from any qualifying goods, I should say, moving from Northern Ireland into Great Britain can sort of pass without checks. And, And I think that what I think is really important to say is that as, as sort of Jill and Jess have said, what it's done is it sort of opened a bit more of a Pandora's box, really, in terms of sort of suggesting that Article 16 could be something that the UK government might be more willing to use in the future. And I think part of it is not just about what the government has signed up to in the Northern Ireland Protocol, but it's also the sort of agreement that the government has gone for in terms of its future relationship with with the EU. So, you know, the government could have decided to stay part of the EU single market, which would have reduced the need for checks um, between um, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. You'd, you wouldn't have those agri-food checks, for example. It could have decided to stay part of the customs union, which would have removed the need for customs checks. Now, the government didn't want to do that. It wanted Great Britain to have sort of the freedom to diverge from EU rules. Um, but because it sort of committed to say that Northern Ireland would continue to follow EU rules in certain areas, we sort of ended up with, with the border that we've got. Um, and and as Jill said, you know, the, the challenge at the moment is that there are sort of a range of grace periods that are coming to an end pretty shortly. Um, and, and the government is very concerned about what that will mean, for example, for supermarkets that um, move um, food into Northern Ireland from Great Britain. Um, but also there are questions about, for example, parcels that are sent um, from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. And, and that's sort of what Michael Gove is now sort of putting pressure on the EU to try and resolve. But so far, you know, the EU has said it's not, you know, not willing to, to discuss this further. There is going to be a meeting, I think, next week. Um, but the EU doesn't seem willing to sort of negotiate around some of the terms that the UK did ultimately sign up to. 
I want to come back. Thank you. I want to come back to some of the, some of those details. But Tony, I was very struck. You put out an extended tweet thread yesterday in which you were arguing that the UK is softening people up and laying the groundwork for triggering Article 16. Is, is that your, your thinking? Well, when I read um, Michael Gove's letter in detail, I mean, it, it just seems so sort of hectoring in tone. And now, of course, the Commission was at fault and they, they've been apologising profusely ever since. You know, he certainly didn't spare the horses in lambasting the Commission over and over again in the letter. And then he set out his six demands, um, you know, extending some of these grace periods, having a common travel area in, its, in effect for pets, seed potatoes, horticultural goods, all of the things that have caused problems in, in the application of the protocol he sort of said the commission had until the end of the week to agree to the UK's proposals. Um, and essentially, if not, then the UK would take unilateral measures. And also, I mean, this, the tone of the letter as well, he said, you know, technical fixes are not enough. They have to be political. And it, it was a technical approach that caused the, the problem the previous Friday with the commission triggering Article 16 not sure what the link is there precisely, but uh, also that, you know, it wasn't technical solutions that built the Good Friday Agreement. It, like, you could call it patronizing, you could call it sort of hectoring, but, you know, I, at, at the, having read the letter, I felt that given what Boris Johnson had said in the House of Commons, and given the, the fact that the UK government has form here with the Internal Market Bill last year, I wouldn't be surprised if this was laying the groundwork for uh, triggering Article 16 themselves. Now, I could be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong, um, and it could be just that the the whole approach of the letter and what Boris Johnson said in the Commons was simply to shock the Commission into being a lot more flexible on the implementation on those issues that, that were in the letter. But again, the Commission has an entirely different view of of what its responsibilities are, and certainly Maros Shevchevich was, you know, was quite annoyed at at some of the tone of the letter, and also the fact that both sides had agreed a partnership deal last December on a whole range of facilitations and easements, which had, you know, really bedeviled the whole issue last year. You'll recall all of the problems with um, the the Joint Committee and and the protocol. Um, and, of course, the Internal Market Bill. Uh, but people I spoke to in the Commission said this feels once again like the Internal Market Bill. It's it's kind of the gun to the head. It's the ultimatum. And, frankly, they didn't know how we were going to move forward from here, apart from the fact that we will have a, a meeting in London next week. Tony, the Commission seemed to be saying that part of the problem is that the UK is not properly using what they're calling flexibilities in the protocol, and that's what's causing causing the problems. I just wondered whether that was the view of the Irish government, that actually the problem is not, not. I mean, you could argue that it's that the UK has negotiated such a distant relationship for GB, inevitably the Irish Sea border has got to be quite a deep border. But does the Irish government think that there are sufficient flexibility in the protocol for it, you know, to deliver that bit in the protocol about being able to operate with sort of, you know, minimum possible effect on the everyday lives of people in Northern Ireland. Is that where the Irish government is? Or is it a bit more sympathetic to the UK government's position? 
Well, I mean, the, the Irish government has a vested interest in making the protocol work because otherwise we will have a, a rolling crisis every four years when the Northern Ireland Assembly gets to vote on, on the protocol or at least aspects of the protocol. So it's in the interest of the Irish government that this works and that people in Northern Ireland become reconciled to the protocol, if, if not embracing it uh, completely. Um, so they would urge you know, maximum flexibility the specific things that the Commission believe that the UK isn't doing uh, relates to the the deal they had last year. I mean, this was definitely a quid pro quo. Yes, the UK got uh, grace periods. They got the trusted trader scheme. They got simplified export health certificate forms. But in return, the UK had to give the EU access to it, the HMRC's database so they could monitor in real time uh, you know, the flow of goods into Northern Ireland. And that was to compensate for the fact that the UK was refusing point blank to have an EU office in Belfast. So therefore, the EU was saying, well, if you're going to restrict, you know, the access of EU officials uh, under the protocol, under Article 12 of the protocol, I think, um, to monitor what's going on, then we're going to have to have something instead of that. And that was going to be access to the IT system of HMRC, and uh, the commission last night was saying, look, we haven't had that access yet. So what do you think? I mean, can, can I just ask you and, 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 um, uh, and everyone on this, uh, Michael Gove has also called the problems in getting food and other goods into Northern Ireland um, through the seaports more than teething problems. But Boris Johnson two weeks ago called them exactly that. So who, who is right? Are they more than teething troubles or, um, or something that just can be sorted out fairly quickly? I mean, I, I, I spoke to somebody uh, in, in the Northern Ireland executive this morning who said, look, you know, there, there are problems, but, you know, people are working extremely hard to, to solve them. And um, the problems with supermarkets are not quite as, uh, as acute as they were. And the whole question of having a simplified form for export health certificates will contribute to easing that, that particular problem. I think the the main concern is that you know we do have another cliff edge on the first of April when the the grace period for export health certificates uh, goes. So supermarkets are scrambling to make sure that they will have systems in place to continue. I mean, I think the, the commission's view is: look, if if you were using the flexibilities were there that were there, then we can see how things are going. That you know this is an ongoing relationship. You know we're not going to be completely. Uh, Jesuitical about you know ev- every single measure being absolutely precise and perfect, uh, and if if you're using the flexibilities that are there, then we can make make a call in three months' time to see how things are going, and if further tweaks and and you know changes are needed, then you know we look at that. I think this is one of the huge difficulties about commenting about Northern Ireland issues from over here is that every issue in Northern Ireland is. You know, has the potential to be refracted through people's different political agendas and people, to some extent, will see everything as confirmation. <laughs> We've written before about confirmation bias, but everything they will see will play into their sort of wider narrative of where are the security risks? Are there shortages? Are there not shortages? Are some people seizing the opportunities of Northern Ireland's new status, being able to serve both, both the GB and the EU market or are people really badly suffering and people will use this always to do it? And that's, I think, one of the things that's really important for the role the UK government plays. 
UK government, together with the Irish government, have really important roles as the almost dispassionate guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. They need, in a sense, not to be playing politics with all of this. They need to be taking that responsibility to both communities in Northern Ireland very, very seriously. And that's why it's always a bit distressing when you see see the UK government very easily slipping in to a sort of you know, political stance taking because Northern Ireland, uh, you know, we've had more reminders this week. It's not like other bits of uh, of the UK. It's very fragile. It's very dangerous. And, you know, it's with extreme care. Jess, so what's the next practical step on this? I mean, uh, just respond to some of what was Tony was saying. I, I do hope that he is he is wrong about uh, the UK government preparing to use Article 16. And I think there is also perhaps um, a question about whether the UK government here is trying to play to a domestic audience and to respond to some of the concerns that have been raised by the unionist community. But I think fundamentally, unilateral measures from either side are not going to provide a sustainable solution for Northern Ireland or the certainty that businesses need. So I think the UK and the EU need to take take these discussions in the joint committee very seriously. Um, I think it's going to need a bit of give and take. I think the EU needs to consider what risk GB to NI supply routes do actually pose to the EU single market. And the UK needs to think about how it can reassure the EU that those supply routes don't uh, pose a threat. Um, I think we saw Michael Gove call for the extension of some of those grace periods. So there's a number of them. I think one of the most important ones um, is on that SPS paperwork that's required to in to expire in April. So there is a need to make decision on that pretty soon um, to, in order to give businesses time to adjust. And, and to plan. Um, but I think even that's not going to come for free. We saw uh, when the first grace period was uh, negotiated that the UK committed to maintaining SPS alignment while that was in place. So I think both sides need to think seriously about what, how they can work together um, to make sure the protocol works in the best way possible. Um, and hopefully we'll see some kind of fruitful discussions next week. And um, if anything good uh, comes from this kind of row um, from Friday and onwards, it's hopefully it will focus Focus minds into finding solutions um, to some of the problems that have become apparent now the protocols in force. Tony, so let me ask you, where next on the vaccine row? There's been a lot of comment in the British papers, as you know, about uh, whether Brexit has allowed uh, Britain to take a different uh, route through the vaccines from the EU. And even some of those who are very opposed to Brexit are perhaps being recruited to that, that notion. How does that seem for Brussels and what's going to happen next on this? Yeah, I mean, this has been just a really awful moment for the EU. You know, the, the Commission and EU leaders are, are really struggling to explain it and, uh, you know, get people, you know, get some understanding for, for what the idea was at the beginning. I mean, there are there are reasons why the EU went for the bulk purchasing approach. Um, initially, you had a number of big countries uh, Germany, France, Italy, and Spain forming this uh, vaccine alliance. But, you know, back in 2009, member states were competing against each other for uh, a SARS vaccine, and, and that turned out to be a terrible mistake. Um, so this time around, the view was, well, look, let's pool the resources of the EU. Uh, we, we negotiate with Big Pharma as one big block with, you know, economic and political muscle and we'll make sure that everybody gets, every country, big and small, rich and poor, gets the vaccines they need. 
Um, now, I, sp- I spoke to an Irish, uh, a senior Irish official last week about this, and he said, yeah, you know, everybody agreed with that at the time. It was felt like it was a great idea. But the moment that idea hits a problem, then you have this 180-degree shift, and the politics of, of, of vaccines have become so toxic that suddenly, uh, because the UK started early um, and, and Israel, then you had the comparator effect and, you know, day by day, you could just see the numbers going up in the UK and the numbers really slow or stagnating in the EU. And that just became a political, you know, heat every day for, for the commission and member states. Um, but, you know, the UK is an island and it, it doesn't need to care about its neighbours necessarily. Whereas there's no use Germany being healthy if Poland and Hungary and other countries aren't you know, you have a single market with the free movement of people and goods. So that was the sort of idea behind this. But of course, you know, there are still questions being asked about why didn't the EU just or the Commission just, you know, throw money at at the issue uh, to buy as many doses as they could, uh, you know, early on, and you know, sign contracts quicker. Sandra Galina, who was the chief negotiator for the EU, said, "Look, we we bought all the doses that were available at the time. You know, doses were." were earmarked for different quarters. We bought absolutely everything we could, um, but you know, still they're still trying to catch up, and that's been an enormously difficult moment uh, for the EU. Of course, um, Great Britain is an island, but uh, the UK shares part of the island of Ireland with the Republic of Ireland, which would yes, as, as we know, would easily take us back to our starting point of this conversation. But uh, Tony, I, I know you have an unbelievably packed day, and you have to head off Brexit. Even now, it's done isn't done. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Big pleasure. Tony may be leaving us right now, but Brexit isn't. We're going to go on and talk about Brexit relationships between the UK and the EU. Because what the Article 16 row has shown us is that for all the upbeat mood that there was around the signing of the treaty on Christmas Eve, Managing these relations is not going to be easy. There is an awful lot of unfinished business. Maddie, you've been thinking about these questions. In fact, you've got a new paper out. So what's the point you're making? So I think, I mean, I think there are really sort of two interrelated points that we're making. I think the first is that the sort of new relationship between the UK and the EU um, is going to be pretty complicated. I mean, the, the sort of the map that we're looking at is both the sort of trade and cooperation agreement, which governs um, trading goods between Great Britain and the EU, but also um, trade and services and other areas of cooperation like law enforcement. Then we've also got this withdrawal agreement, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we've already been speaking about quite a lot, which obviously includes the sort of uh, provisions which govern trade in goods between Northern Ireland and the EU and trading goods between um, Northern Ireland and Great Britain and sort of trying to understand and manage those two bits of sort of two pillars of this relationship I think is quite a big task for Whitehall but then on top of that sort of within the UK we've also got some challenges in terms of managing trade between England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and so the government also needs to grapple with its new Internal Market Act and also common frameworks which they're currently developing to try and manage divergence between um, the nations within the UK. And sort of looking at all of this together means that the, the government really needs to be prepared to think about, I think, this within the round. You can't look at one aspect of this relationship in isolation. And that sort of 
brings me to the sort of the second key point, which is that the government needs to have a central coordinating function to consider all of these issues, to think about the relationship with the devolved governments and how that plays into its relationship with the EU, to think about the Northern Ireland Protocol and how that will sort of develop over time and what changes to domestic policy or changes to EU policy might mean for that border in the Irish Sea. And then more broadly, um, to sort of try and understand what this incredibly complicated trade and cooperation agreement actually means for how the sort of UK develops both its sort of domestic regulatory policy, but also its future trade policy. So essentially, we're setting out quite a big task for the government in the year ahead. Jill, do you reckon the government recognises how much is still to be done? At one level, I think yes. But at another level, I think what we've also seen in the early uh, uh, weeks of this year is a sort of slight attempt to distance itself from the EU. Uh, We've had this sort of slightly unseemly spat about the recognition of the EU representation in London. And there is a bit of a sense to try and say, well, actually, we're now out of this arrangement and therefore we don't need to deal that much with the EU as an institution. We know that if you take some of, you know, David Frost, Lord Frost, the UK's former chief negotiator, now the Prime Minister's personal Brexit and international policy representative is heading up a new little unit in number 10, which may be given a lot of these relationship management functions, that his view very much is that the EU is in a sense a bit illegitimate. There are all these stories about him referring it to to Michel Barnier's your organisation and sort of slightly dismissing it as uh, anything on a par with the UK and a proper nation state. So I think, you know, this is a relation that needs uh, needs treating with care until it settles down. The UK, in a sense, has been quite lucky that the first big blundering of failing to make the connections, which is what Maddie and I are really talking about in this paper, has been on the EU side last Friday when somebody working out, you know, their whack-a-mole strategy on vaccines to try and stop them leaking outside the EU inadvertently set off, um, I'm going to mix my metaphors here, set off the alarm bells on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that's the sort of thing that if we're going to fall into these sort of traps of perhaps triggering some of the dispute mechanisms in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, it needs to be done knowingly with due deliberation rather than by uh, by mistake. So, and that's an area where you're going to need, until everybody's sort of completely up to speed with what all of this means, it's sort of settled down a bit, you're going to need some quite heavy-handed internal processes. Not yet clear that the government's thought that through properly. We haven't nominated a minister to chair the Partnership Council yet. We haven't set up new cabinet committee arrangements to oversee sort of decision-making under the TCA so there are lots of bits. We haven't worked out how the devolves will be um, uh, be sort of fed in and how we manage that relationship with Northern Ireland Protocol. So lots of moving parts and we lacking that sort of, you know, hidden wiring. I think Peter Hennessy used to always refer it to, the sort of connecting parts to make this work smoothly. Yeah. And Jess, I mean, where does Northern Ireland come into this? 
Yeah, so as Maddie and Jill have both kind of alluded to, Northern Ireland has uh, specific considerations within kind of future EU structures. Um, so under the protocol, Northern Ireland will continue to be bound by over 300 EU regulations and directives. When those are updated or amended, uh, Northern Ireland or the UK, depending on who's responsible for that particular area, will also need to update the law in Northern Ireland in line with that. Um, and so there's a risk that going forward, uh, the statute books of Great Britain and the EU diverge uh, more and more. And that puts Northern Ireland in a difficult position. And we see issues, more issues like uh, the issue that we saw on Friday. So I think it's really important that there are structures embedded to make sure that any kind of policy official within the UK government or potentially the devolved administrations as well is aware of those specific obligations that Northern Ireland has under the protocol. And that that's taken into account when policy is made for the rest of the UK. Um, And I also think the UK government needs to think about how it intends to influence the EU um, on some of these matters. Um, Our colleague Georgie, uh, uh, Georgie Wright, wrote a large, a big report about this last year, is that there's a kind of tendency to think that now we're out of the EU, that the relationship obviously does change. But I think there's still a question of how we might try and feed into those policy processes to make sure that EU regulations or directives that have implications for Northern Ireland, um, those particular considerations are considered. That we can still influence these uh, things other than by long letters from from Michael Gove, even though we're not in the room, we've still got some influence. It's a very good point. Maddie, uh, David Frost, who was the Brexit negotiator, has been given a new job. What's, What's he up to? Yeah, so as Jill sort of mentioned, he's he's become the Prime Minister's Brexit and International Policy Representative. You know, it's worth saying that sort of last year he was made the National Security Advisor, which was sort of seen as quite controversial, even sort of draw criticism from former Prime Minister Theresa May sort of saying actually he didn't really have the relevant experience of that. I think this role seems to sort of suit his expertise better. So he'll be looking at both the sort of EU relationship and sort of in theory, setting some sort of strategy for the UK's future relationship with the EU, but also looking at the sort of wider international trade and economic issues. So I think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see sort of how he tries to balance those two competing interests. As we've mentioned, you know, obviously they are very closely interrelated, but I think there, there will be a real interesting question once we see which minister heads up the partnership council and it does you know in in the treaty it does have to be a minister who co-chairs the partnership council overseeing the 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 treaty um sort of how the minister david frost and the prime minister sort of work together to to sort of set that that future strategy um so hopefully we'll sort of get a better indication going forward but but it is worth mentioning you know he in this role he is a special advisor he's not a minister and he's not a civil servant so this sort of question about accountability to parliament um, which we sort of raised when he was first um, sort of appointed the Brexit negotiator, I think think will will be sort of continue to be um, a big question. But I think sort of my final point on it, I think is just that it, it's sort of welcome it. I mean, it's sensible, basically, to sort of have the person who was overseeing the negotiations to sort of remain in a role overseeing the, the sort of direction of, of the UK's sort of relationship with the EU to sort of oversee the, the hammering out of those final details. And Jill, briefly, uh, just bring us up to date with the row of the EU ambassador, where you have strong feelings. I just think it sort of looks a bit uh, a bit silly. We seem to be not following the precedent of almost every other country in the world by failing to grant uh, sort of proper full diplomatic status. Uh, lots of niceties of niceties about it, but I think what actually last Friday showed that the new EU ambassador, if you're allowed to call him that, 
showed was that actually he's quite a useful ally because he seems to have been quite a big player behind the scenes in diffusing the tension. So it seems to me a rather petty spat. And it's actually had an unproductive byproduct, which is at the moment the EU is cancelling formal meetings with our newly appointed uh, ambassador to the EU. It's so uh, backfiring already. All right. Well, so that's not good. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good. Contributes to everything that we've been talking about. Well, thanks for that. Well, let's say goodbye to Brexit for the moment and turn our thoughts to net zero. That's the UK target to wipe out its net carbon emissions by 2050. In November, the UK is hosting COP26, a huge climate change summit in Glasgow, and it's a big chance to show how global Britain, no longer part of the EU, can wield influence across the world. And to look ahead to that conference, we have our own conference. On Wednesday, the IFG is hosting a special one-day examination of all things to do with net zero. Joining us now is Tom Sass, IFG Associate Director and one of the brains behind our conference. Hi, Tom. Hi, Brian. So tell us what the day is all about. So the aim of the day really is to say, look, it's great that all these countries around the world have set these targets to reach net zero. So as well as the UK and and Europe, we now have China, Japan, South Korea, hopefully soon the US. But we know from past experience that it's much easier to set targets than to meet them. And we know that, you know, both politically and technically, reaching net zero is going to be very, very difficult. So the question is, you know, what do all these countries need to do to get there? And what can they learn from one another? Uh, and how can they sort of work together to get on with actually reducing emissions, both sort of at COP26 and beyond? So who have we got involved? We're kicking off the day with Amber Rudd, uh, former Home Secretary and the first Conservative Energy and Climate Minister. And she represented the UK at the last of these big COP conferences in Paris back in 2015. Uh, so she's going to be sort of taking us behind the scenes of these summits and telling us sort of what needs to happen to to make, to sort of pull off a diplomatic success. We're then splitting the main part of the day into three big themes that we identified in our research as the sort of challenges in, in actually getting on with net zero. So that's getting the public on board, delivering these changes on the ground and working out how to pay for it all. Uh, and we've got some big names from, from the worlds of government, business, think tanks elsewhere. We've got Chris Stark from the Climate Change Committee, uh, Becky Willis, a climate expert who was involved in the UK Climate Assembly, Dieter Helm, an Oxford professor, Paul Johnson from the IFS, many others. And then we're ending the day uh, with a re- really sort of detailed look ahead to Glasgow. And we've got, uh, very excitingly, the sort of current and former lead climate negotiators from Germany, uh, the EU, the UK and Singapore, who will be talking about what actually needs to happen in that conference room now. And, and that's fascinating. It's really a collection of people who've spent their life on environmental climate change, on energy, all these things. And um, suddenly there is this summit pulling it together. But Jill, just tell us, how does an international conference work in the, in the coronavirus age? Uh, we don't know yet. It's, it's really interesting because the notable thing about the COPs is just how big they are. It's not just that you get these big representations from governments, um, but also you get this massive, if you like, sort of fringe event where you get businesses, NGOs, civil society organisations all descending en masse to be part of this. And one of the really interesting things, and I think will come out when we uh, talk, on, uh, talk on Wednesday to Amber Rudd, she was saying that there's a really interesting interaction 
between that sort of scale of external pressure, which sort of changes the atmosphere among the political leaders who tend to just sort of jet in at the end. They, these are sort of two-week conferences usually. The negotiators all get there and try and hammer out what can they do, what can they agree. There's loads of prep work that goes in. But what you tend to do is when it looks as though a deal might be coming in over the line, suddenly the leaders of the, of the world jet in slightly inappropriately, but anyway, jet in to sign off on whatever is agreed and unveil the triumph. But but one of the points she, she I think, you know, we were talking to her sort of, you know, preparing this session. One of the points she was quite interesting on is that interaction. And, uh, and she was thinking that in an age of climate, and we're assuming this will be a physical conference at the moment, that uh, COVID won't, won't sort of basically make it just the world's biggest ever Zoom conference. But she was saying it will probably be very slimmed down with much smaller delegations. But she thought that, you know, if you end up restricting all this external activities, you know, that would actually potentially reduce the pressure that leaders would feel, the political pressure, uh, in order to come to some sort of, you know, more ambitious agreement. This tendency is sometimes to default to lowest common denominator and leave a very big gap with what the scientists think is necessary to tackle climate change. So it'd be very e- interesting how different this might feel as a post-COVID, first big post-COVID COP. Um, of course, we'll get a bit of a dry run with the G7 summit, which the UK is also hosting in Cornwall in June, and to try and see whether it's possible to bring people together then. But one of these world leaders is going to be Joe Biden. A senior civil servant said to me, well, um, you know, um, at least coronavirus, about which there is nothing good to be said, but it, it uh, put uh, the COP26 into the presidency of Joe Biden rather than Donald Trump, at which point uh, you know, under the Trump presidency, a, a deal might just frankly have been impossible but tom just take us into what success actually means is it a is it a deal is it some kind of communique that that seems to say something but isn't binding what 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 should come out of this well i think it's a good question because sort of as i said at the top you've got all these countries that now have their net zero targets so that's 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 not the sort of big challenge actually now the question is going to move more to how can we lock in shorter term progress? You know, what are the 2030 nearer term targets going to be? Uh, China's notably not been particularly ambitious there yet. Also, a lot of the conversation moving to what is the first thing you need to be getting on with right now? And sort of a lot of people saying it's your electricity and power system because decarboning, decarbonizing everything else relies on that. The Biden administration talking a lot about investing in renewables, as is the UK. But I think you're right. Bronwyn, to just raise the, you know, the Joe Biden election does make a real difference. It makes it much harder for some of the laggards. They don't have sort of Trump to hide behind. And we've seen Australia coming out with some announcements on its target this week. But I think the also the really interesting thing in terms of the diplomacy here is the US-China relationship. You know, clearly, you know, Biden and John Kerry are going to be the sort of diplomatic star power. So what does that make Sharma's role in this look like? Um, but also how does the UK sort of carve out a role in sort of negotiating between all these different parts? You know, the, the US administration, the Biden administration seemed a bit annoyed by the, the EU going off and sort of signing an investment deal with uh, China, which was announced last month. Uh, the UK potentially has a bit of a role in kind of bridging between all these different players, but that's a tricky one for, for Sharma to work out. And so, Tom, tell uh, everyone who's listening to this, how can they attend? 
So you can go on the IFG's website uh, and the conference is, is there on our Net Zero page. Uh, you can register for the whole conference or for any of the specific panels, watch it online, submit questions and, and, and get involved. So it's next Wednesday on the 10th of February. Great. Well, I'm chairing the Amber Rudd session at the beginning. I'm very much looking forward to it. And well done for putting all this together. Everyone listening, um, please do join us with that. We'd, we'd love your comments. But that is it for another week. My great thanks to Maddie Timont-Jack, Jess Sargent, Jill Rutter, Tom Sachs, and earlier to Tony Connolly. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got brand new recordings there for you, including the launch event for our Whitehall Monitor 2021 report and an in-conversation event with Andrew Ledsom, which is all about the future of the House of Commons. You can listen to our podcast at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Please do leave us a review. We'll be back next week. And until then, you can find all our work, including Maddie's new Brexit report, at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. 